change the way it's done, do it quicker, faster, whatever it is, that's true innovation. How'd they do that? Step number one would be try it. Have you tried? What, what innovation are you talking about? What's the number one priority? What do we have to innovate first? Hi everyone, Mark here and welcome to the Indifference Podcast. This is where I have conversations with people at the top of the game and try and understand what it's that they do to create progress on key issues. Today I'm joined by Dr. Carla Koyanen. Carla is a researcher at University College Dublin where she studies how to create innovation districts, an area where entrepreneurs can use part of their city as a launchpad to test ideas and set up companies. Almost every country in the world has tried to create a mini Silicon Valley. The reason most cities have done this is to make sure that they can compete in the global economy. Carla's work pulls apart how it is governments are achieving this. Her products so far have incurred insights from around the world, such as Canada, Mexico, Boston, Detroit, and now Dublin. These insights are key for creating innovation districts that will shape a city for decades. So let's just get straight into the conversation with Carla. I really hope you enjoy it and pick some insights up along the way. Carla, thanks very much for coming on today and having a chat with us. Yeah, you're welcome. So we'll just get straight into it, I guess. What first got you interested in urban planning? So I came about to urban planning in a a bit of a roundabout way. I've always been interested in issues of space and place, but I had always approached them through other disciplines. So I was interested in sociology first and then geography and anthropology, but I am a bit of a nomad and I've moved around various countries and various cities. And I think that traveling of the world just demonstrated the different types of inequalities across different types of cities. And for the most part, I've always been issue, I've always been interested in issues around power and increasingly the way that private corporations um, have power over public spaces. So when I was living in Mexico, I watched this debate unfold where Walmart was building a headquarters, not a headquarters, but a store in the historic site of the Teotihuacan pyramids. And, you know, it really rattled me. So trying to understand how it was possible that this private corporation was able to build on these protected lands crystallized the issue of who has more power and who has control over space. So just kind of continuing along those themes, I, um, I, I came to planning because it requires individuals who are actually making plans for how cities are going to be built and how they're going to be developed. And so I grew increasingly interested in the politics around that and what were the different types of tools that practitioners use to actually shape the city. It's amazing, isn't it? Because most of the world lives in cities, or at least in this country anyway, isn't it? And, you know, we often forget to ask, well, how did this city kind of pop up and how has it evolved and expanded over time? And all them different factors that we just never think of can drive all that. For sure, for sure. I mean, we are definitely now in a moment in time where more people live in the cities. But it is also important to recognize that even though we're tipped to more people in cities, 
there's still a large percentage of people who don't live in the cities. And the fact that we focus so much on cities does also cause some problems for those people who don't live in the cities and who are impacted by the policies that prioritize cities and look to cities as spaces for regional growth and development. And so within all that, when you're going about your work and you're really trying to figure out, okay, look, where's the space here where there's an opportunity to make a real difference to the people living in cities or living elsewhere? How do you know what to focus on? I don't always know if I'm perfectly honest. I think that I am a reactionary person and I'm quite observant of my surroundings. So I think that based on where I am and what I'm reading, what I'm finding in the papers, um, what I'm seeing in my environment and in my communities, that tends to impact my research agenda or at least inform it. And um, I, I think if anything, the theme that cuts across all the different types of research projects I've engaged or policies I've tried to impact, it has always been a focus on marginalized people. So that lens, the lens of social justice and the lens of trying to understand how power is disproportionately impacting various people, that is probably what guides me. Um, so it could be a focus on corporations. It could be more recently, I'm focusing on the connection between the tech sector and that type of development that supports the tech sector and how that intersects with issues of housing, um, housing affordability, housing availability, issues of homelessness. So that's something that I'm really looking at here, but it could be, it doesn't necessarily have to be that, um, as long as I'm really trying to understand who is disproportionately impacted, that seems to be where my interests lie. And there's so many people involved in that whole web of activities from enterprises to economic growth to looking at social services and uh, housing for the public also. So within that, you know, what are some of the core guiding principles that help you get this work underway? I think exactly what you're saying, right? There's so much complexity and there's so much nuance that even trying to figure out who are the stakeholders, who are the people involved in these decisions, having a, a mapping type of or network exercise, that alone, I think, is beneficial because sometimes you find that, you know, certain stakeholders you wouldn't have expected to be there are there or other stakeholders like the public often, you know, other stakeholders you think should be involved aren't involved. So having a clear view of who is involved in various types of practices related to city building is important to try to figure out, you know, what, why are we seeing the types of problems that we're seeing or why is it that certain, you know, things are highlighted over others and then to interview these people, to talk to these people, to ask them and not even in a biased way, but to ask them, what do you think the ideal city is and what do you think the city needs? And then to try to map that together, piece it together and understand, okay, well, if these are the dominant people making the decisions around the table and this is how they think about city building, then it's obvious that we are neglecting other people who aren't here, for example. It is that massive empathy piece is so important, isn't it? Actually being able to 
point to what are other people's opinions and perspectives and, and needs ultimately when we come to design the places where we're going to live? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I think that at least, so I hail from America and that's where I studied urban planning and the discipline certainly tries, you know, makes an active effort to be inclusive. Well, okay. Let me shelve that because there are a lot of problems, but there are theories and there are practices on how to ensure that the public is involved in decision making. But the reality is it's hard to engage the public. It's hard to reach all people. It's hard to convince people that that they need to have a stake in the development of their area or to even meet them where they are so that they have the opportunity to discuss and um, to participate in that process. But I think that every effort needs to be made. I think that if we are impacting the lives of people on the ground, if we are impacting the lives of people in these communities, then we need to talk to these community members to see what is it they want? What is it they need? And of course we can bring a degree of expertise, but we also have to treat them as experts of their own communities, of their own localities. So as you're going about that, Carolyn, how do you know if your approach is working? Oh, I don't. You know, I, I, think, I think being an academic really challenges that, right? There are active debate, debates in professional degrees, but also in the social sciences about the intersection between theory and practice. So I don't always know that my approach is working. I do know that other approaches aren't working. Um, I do know that the contemporary affinity of nurturing growth models is failing humanity and is failing the earth. Um, and I, I try to make an active effort to inform policy, to be someone who can both create theory and use that theory to inform policy but that's a very hard that's a hard bridge to build mostly because you know policy is not always interested in the pace of academics and universities want academics to focus on theory and that particularly in america that is what is evaluated how you're contributing to theory what publications, you know, peer-reviewed academic publications, that that's where you need to focus the attention and not on working with policymakers and writing reports. Those don't count towards tenure in the United States. So, so bridging, bridging theory and practice is, is hard, but I, I do believe that it is probably one of the most direct ways that academics can actually impact the, the building of the city. Do I know it's working? No, not always, but it's an active effort that I suppose I could say fulfills me and that I, I willingly engage. You touch on one of the core issues, I think, in trying to make progress in, in any sector where you're dependent on experts to come along to have some degree of evidence to justify the path we're going to take. And that is that the credits in them two sectors in terms of what's really valued to get you further up the path are often competing with each other in terms of credits, in terms of peer-reviewed publications, but then also actually the 
things that politicians and policymakers need so that they can, you know, essentially win votes and get people into their quarter. And right. it links into what you touched on regarding the mapping of the stakeholders and who needs what and what's going to be the key ammunition to help people execute these sort of strategies. For sure. For sure. I mean, I think politicians or public elected officials, they, they need to demonstrate success. Right. And that is often done with large, sexy initiatives and not by, you know, updating derelict infrastructure, for example. Um, so for sure, I think the timeline and the, the speed at which policy and academic work that definitely impacts what gets prioritized um, in terms of knowledges, what knowledges get prioritized. Um, and the public sector, you know, it, it has been so stripped of resources that they have to justify their own existence. They have to demonstrate success. They need to be outcome oriented. But I don't think that research can be outcome oriented in that same way. I think research takes, it takes time to come up with a research question that is unbiased and that is going to be exploratory and might you know, end up with a result that is not what the, the practitioner, or the politician wants. So, so the researcher in this type of capacity has to be comfortable with disappointing the funder or disappointing these, the public stakeholders that, you know, we collaborate with, you know, in, in these collaborative projects or who are waiting for our outcomes, our findings. Uh, they might, it might not always suit their needs. It is the big thing, isn't it? Sometimes the outcome isn't what you've spent years thinking it was going to be and working towards. But within that, then, you know, what have been some of your biggest insights so far? Um, you know, I think because I am someone, again, I am a, a nomad. I'm someone who really immerses myself in my surroundings. And so in the past year and a half that I've been here, my insights have a lot to do with Ireland. Um, so on a more, you know, local scale, I think I've been really, I've had to check myself and my findings in relation to the recent poverty in Ireland and how that provokes, not justifies, but it provokes this urgency to compete at a global city, global status level, right? To be a big player. Um, you know, uh, many of the efforts, I look at smart Docklands, for example, um, and just the development of the Docklands, you know, a lot of the developments are aimed at, and a lot of the policy is aimed at achieving global city status and attracting global capital investment and attracting talent workers um, that can partake in that society with the idea that, you know, if we build that base, then we will have success in regional development because of trickle down logics. Um, I don't believe that always to be the case, but I have to recognize that there is a different type of history here that influences the way that practitioners and policymakers think. I guess also on the flip side, again, contextualizing that I'm coming from an American context, it's been really gratifying and really interesting to see how COVID 
highlighted this Irish approach to caring for society. You know, in the U.S., it's a very individualistic type of ethos. And as the media will demonstrate, you know, I mean, mask mandates were were not welcome. Um, whereas here, there just seems to be more of a collective understanding and a collective agreement and willingness to adhere to health recommendations to help society out. So I think I'm really trying to understand these different tensions of this individualistic desire, this competitive desire to compete at the global scale, but then also this willingness to, to be more socially oriented than I see back in the United States. Do you think then, Carla, even looking at approaches around the world, kind of where would Ireland's model kind of match up in terms of pursuing the expansion of urban areas so that they can compete at an international level, but then also, you know, not losing them core values we have as a society of caring for each other? You know, how do we go about actually marrying up the two? That's a very hard question. How do you marry the two? I, I think there is a recalibration at the moment. And I have seen policies that uh, Irish policies that are embracing, you know, bike use lanes, for example, is one marginal one or social, the, the pup payments, for example, you know, something like that, or supporting artists through these times. Um, these are policies that have been really challenging to push back in the United States. So, so I like that that focus remains. Um, but I, I do think that in the recent example of the recession, right, that was a moment to also recalibrate how cities were built and who they prioritize and the financing of the city in a way that is really looking to speculate on where the greatest investments will come. And I think there was a moment in time where there was a pause and a hope to build a better city, but sadly many cities reverted and many policymakers reverted back to business as usual. So I think it remains to be seen what will happen post COVID. I think it, a lot of it depends on how long it takes us to exit from the pandemic. So I don't have an answer. <laughs> long way of saying I don't have an answer, but I hope that COVID and the realities that COVID brought about in terms of the injustices in the city and who was impacted harder, what sectors were impacted, what neighborhoods were impacted. I hope that we don't lose sight of that moving forward. Recognizing that and then carrying that forward, you know, what are your hopes for urban planning in the future beyond you know, recognizing the, the needs of local communities? My knee-jerk reaction for my hope for cities is chaos. You know, I think that we've been moving towards a rational type of streamlined city building where everything is orderly, where we can track people using smart technologies, where everything is efficient. And for me, that is very much like a, a basis to allow capitalism to keep flourishing. Um, so there's a part of me that says, no, I want to embrace the chaos of the city. I don't like everything to be so planned. And this is me, you know, someone who has studied urban planning. I don't want the planning to be in the favor of capital. And there are long debates about, you know, planning is pushing a capitalist agenda. They go hand in hand. But I'd like to believe that planning can 
can also or can differently be a practice that protects communities and protects marginalized individuals and really embraces diversity and inclusion and different ways of knowing and different ways of thinking and being um, and ensures that we don't lose that type of diversity from our cities. Um, and I do think that in order to do that, we have to continue with keeping our ear to the ground and not completely embracing top-down approaches to urban development, but really considering bottom-up local needs and bottom-up approaches to development. Garlett, that was the final question. So listen, many thanks for joining us today. It's been really, really interesting, especially talking about post-pandemic times and what we want the urban areas where we live to look like. So really, really thanks for uh, giving us some of them insights today. You're welcome. Thank you again for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Carla, all the best. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Hi, Mark here again. Thanks for listening and I really hope you enjoyed our conversation and picked up a few insights from it. Be sure to leave us a rating from where you get your podcasts and even better, share it with a friend who you think will enjoy it. Thanks again and I hope you tune in next week.